Good morning. Great to see y'all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and part of our preaching team. And uh, I want to welcome those of you watching online as well. It's, uh, it's great to be able to be together. Um, you know, over these last couple of months, I have been uh, doing something fun. I've been coaching my little guy Hank's t-ball team. And uh, he's four, but it's a team of three and four-year-olds. And it's funny because this is his second year of playing, so he kind of gets the hang of this a little bit. But I forgot how hard it is to teach baseball <laughs> Uh, to three-year-olds. Um, this is tricky, right? I, and I played baseball a lot of my life, but just even trying to explain how it works is really pretty difficult. And the part that you wouldn't think would be that difficult, but has actually turned out to be pretty tough, is getting them to figure out that after you hit the ball, you run to first. And uh, th- this is just a very difficult concept, apparently, when you are three or four years old. And so I would gather the boys at home plate. The way our league works is we do a practice for 30 minutes and then a game for 30 minutes and just all in one day. It's perfect. So we're gathered at home plate. And I say, all right, guys, uh, after you hit the ball, point to where you run. I mean, there's arms going everywhere. And it's like, all right, boys, it's right over there, right over there, right? And it's amazing. I mean, like four or five games into the season, I'll be with a kid during, uh, during the game and I'll go, all right, buddy, after you hit it, where are you going to run? And he points to first and then hits it and chases the ball he just hit, right? And it's like, ah, oh, how do I get these kids to do this? And so I finally thought, you know what, maybe they just need an example. Maybe they need a model. So uh, Mary, who's six, uh, one of my kids was, was at the game and I said, all right, Mary, here's what I want you to do. I want you to run to first base and show the boys how to do it. And so she would take a practice swing and run. And sure enough, they, they're starting to get the hang of it. And the reality is I think we're maybe more like three and four-year-olds than we want to admit. We need some models in life. A lot of times people come with ideas and suggestions. A lot of times the Christian life sort of feels like these concepts that are hard to grasp. And we need models. We need examples. We need pictures. We need positive pictures that we can emulate. We need negative pictures that we can avoid. And that's what we're going to find in this particular passage today is a number of pictures, a number of models, a number of examples of uh, one that's a positive example that we should consider how we could emulate it. Another one that's a negative example that we should do everything we can to avoid. And then a third one that we probably can't imitate, but we can at least regard it with awe. Today we're going to look at a picture of worship, a picture of hypocrisy, and a picture of the true king. That's where we're going to go. Let's pray and dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us. God, we do believe here that every word of yours is living and active, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword that it cuts through to our motives and our intentions. And so, God, we, we come today, we bring ourselves under your word. We ask you to search us and know us, to provide encouragement, to provide conviction, to provide salvation. Help us to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So three pictures we're looking at today. Uh, the first one is a picture of worship, a picture of worship. So if you have your Bible, grab it, and we can follow along here in chapter 12. Now, you have to understand the setting of this passage is it's coming out of chapter 11. And in chapter 11, Jesus had heard that his good friend Lazarus was sick and was was gravely sick. And knowing that and loving Lazarus, he chose intentionally not to go heal him. Instead, he stayed where he was, and he waited, and he let Lazarus die. And he hears that Lazarus is dead, and he heads over to go 
and to be with the family. And both of Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, with very different personalities, both come out to Jesus and say the exact same thing. They say, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus mourns with them, encourages them, spends time with them, and ultimately says, this all happened so that God would be glorified. And four days after Lazarus is dead and buried, he says, Lazarus, come out, and the dead man comes out of the tomb. That's what happened in chapter 11, and that sets up what's going on here in chapter 12. That resurrection of of Lazarus really is what sealed the death warrant of Jesus, which is going to happen on Passover weekend. And it says in John chapter 12, six days before the Passover, so this tells us we're nearing the end of Jesus' life. The rest of this book is going to be about this final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. In Mark's account of this, in Mark chapter 14, we learn that this took place at the house of a man named Simon the leper. So it's being hosted by another person who'd experienced the miraculous healing of Jesus. And it says, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. This is amazing. Think about this. The last time we saw Lazarus reclining, wasn't good, and he wasn't breathing. And now here he is, he's at the party. And we don't totally know, is the party for him? Is the party for Jesus? We don't totally know, but they're there and they're celebrating. And Mary has this heart of worship that we see in verse three. Mary, one of the sisters of Lazarus says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, we got to understand how this would have looked. So we kind of imagine a big dinner table and a bunch of chairs or a bunch of stools or benches. That's not how this would have been. Almost certainly this would have been a very low table and the disciples would have been leaning into it with their legs extended away from the table. And so Mary is back behind where Jesus' feet are. And she's pouring out all this ointment. And it's so much ointment that it says in the next part of uh, verse 3, it says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is like not a little bit. This is a lot. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Friends, this is a picture of worship, and it's a picture in particular of extravagant worship. There's so much about this passage that suggests extravagance, right? This is a a pound of this expensive ointment. This is a very expensive ointment. It fills the house with it, right? This is not just a little like, do you smell something? This is like, holy smokes, that is like, I smell something. It's filling the house. And it's expensive, right? Like in verse five, Judas estimates this could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, we don't know what denarii are, right, in our everyday life. So here's what they, here's what they were. A denarius was an amount of money that was equivalent to one day's wage for a laborer. So 300 of those is what? A year, right? So I, don't, I mean, depending on a person's industry, right, in today's language, she she had this jar of ointment worth thirty-five dollars to $80,000. And that's what she's dumping all over Jesus' feet and giving him a hair massage with. Right? I mean, don't you read that and go, 
a little excessive. Like, I mean, she could have splurged and got the, like maybe she knew a like essential oil consultant who could have given her a great deal on a $50 bottle, not a $50,000 bottle. It just feels over the top. And it is. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. There's a moment in our lives as Christians for extravagant worship. This isn't the only place in the Bible that describes a kind of extravagant worship. There's another spot in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, What had happened is uh, the people had revered the Ark of the Covenant. You know that thing that Indiana Jones had been chasing down? Uh, The Ark of the Covenant was the thing that was to be in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple. And it was the place above the the Ark was where the, the presence of God was said to dwell. And for whatever reason, the, the, the people of Israel, after they had lost the ark in a battle to the Philistines, at one point they win it back, but it ends up in like a storage unit in Globe. And no one's exactly sure where it is or why it's there. And it's not in Jerusalem and it's not in the temple and it's not in the tabernacle. It's not in any of these places. And finally someone goes, you know what? We should get that ark thing back. And they bring it back into Jerusalem and there's a big parade for it. And at this moment, as, as this thing that symbolizes the presence of God is coming into the city, King David begins to freak out. He loses it. He's dancing and he's jumping and he's shouting and he's twirling and he's spinning. And in the process, right, some of his garments don't entirely cover every part of him. And it's a little like scandalous. And and some of the people, even his own wife, are like, what is wrong with you? You're a king. You're supposed to act like dignified. And you know what he says? He says, I'll become even more undignified than this. Because the ark's here. God's here. There's a place in the life of a follower of God for extravagant worship, for costly worship. There's another place at the end of 2 Samuel 24 where uh, David is going to make a sacrifice and someone offers. They say, well, hey, I'll provide the animals for the sacrifice. And he goes, no, 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 no. I want this sacrifice to cost me. I'm not gonna, he, here's what he says. He says, I'm not going to give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. There's a place where worship should be costly. Another example we find in the Gospels is in Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus does a thing with the disciples he's training that I've never seen as part of any kind of leadership development program. They decide to sit across from the offering boxes and watch what everybody gives. Now, you're thinking, I thought churches were obsessed with money. Not as much as Jesus. Right? Like some of you are like, I'll volunteer for that ministry. We're not starting that ministry. Right? But can you just imagine if it was like, all right, everybody, let's watch. What do they give? What do they give? What do they give? What do they give? I mean, this is like uncomfortable. This is what Jesus is doing. Well, that woke you up. A little flash there. I don't know what that was. But why is Jesus doing this? Because here's what Jesus knows Jesus knows that your money is connected to your worship. And so, what, what gets Jesus' attention is not the person that gives something really expensive. Right? I mean, that's what goes on here. And we might think, oh, in order to impress Jesus or worship Jesus, we have to give something expensive. But in Mark 12, it's not something expensive in terms of the overall amount. But what you have is a widow who gives her last two coins to the offering. And Jesus says, that's faith. That's worship. She gave more than anybody because of how much it cost her. Right? It, it's a kind of worship that feels silly that feels maybe foolish, maybe dumb, maybe crazy. Let me ask us, is there a place 
in our Christian life for crazy, for too much, for, ah, that's a lot. Is there a place where we would get too crazy in our worship for the Lord, where we would get too loud, right? And I know some of you are like, well, but I've seen stuff on TV where people are just totally crazy and they're running up and down the house. We're not in danger of that here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're so not in danger of that. But is there a place in our, in our singing of praise for lifting our hands, for clapping, for spinning, for dancing, for shouting? Is there? I don't know. Are you there? Hello. I hope there is. Is there a place in our life with God for cranking up the volume, for shouting? Is there a place in our life with God for extravagant giving? I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't begin to, like I could not give a year's worth of salary. But here's the thing that's convicting. I've never even been tempted to. I've never wanted to. But what if you could? Would you be tempted by it? Is there a place in our Christian life to be too generous with our time, too generous with our energy? I mean, I, I, I don't know, and, I, and I'm not coming at this as a place like I'm like Mary. I'm more convicted by her. And here's the other thing I want to be clear about. This is a description, not a prescription, okay? We're not called to do this. We're not commanded to do this. Just like when Jesus encounters the rich young ruler and he tells him, sell everything you have, that's a description of what happened, not a prescription. All right, so I'm not saying that this is prescriptive, but it should just jolt us a little bit and go, is our worship of God too safe? Is our enjoyment of Jesus too cheap? Or is there a place for some extravagance? Here's what an artist who often gets accused of creating too much extravagance, and, uh, and, and we've had accusations about this even as it relates to our building, right? This is a nice building, and, and he's talking about some of those dynamics. His name's Mikado Fujimura. Here's what he says. He says, our Christian culture seems to shrink from things that seem extravagant. What a waste we might hear, because we could have fed the poor. When Princess Diana was tragically killed, thousands, perhaps millions of roses filled the streets of London. No one charged that this was inappropriate extravagance. It was simply a proper way for British people to express their grief. The justification of extravagance, therefore, does not hinge on the amount of money or the number of roses. It has everything to do with the object of our extravagance, the object of our adoration or the object of our grief. The problem is not that we do not have an extravagant visual culture. The problem is that we do not believe in an extravagant God. To the degree that we, like Mary, experience the extravagant grace of God, to that degree we will respond extravagantly back to God. Here she is. Her brother was dead, and now he's alive. If you're a follower of Jesus, listen to me. You were dead, and now you're alive. You worship an extravagant God, and from time to time we ought to be tempted to worship him extravagantly. That's the first picture we see. The second is more of something to not imitate, but avoid. And that's a picture of hypocrisy. Now, a lot of us are familiar with the idea that we as Christians are hypocrites. Some of you here, some of you maybe watching online are thinking, you know, yeah, that's my problem with you Christians, is you guys are hypocrites. 
And uh, here's the thing. I'm not actually going to disagree with you. I think that's true. We are often very hypocritical. But if you're going to accuse us of that, will you at least accuse us of it the right way? Here's what I mean. Most of us totally misunderstand what hypocrisy is. So if you're going to accuse us of hypocrisy, at least get it right, okay? We think hypocrisy is having a standard that you can't live up to, right? It's, it's having a talk that doesn't match your walk. And, and that's not hypocrisy. That's just human failure, right? Because everyone, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you have some standard of what's ideal for your life. And if you fail to live up to it, that doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes you a sinner, Here's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is pretending that you're something you're not. It's not falling short of your goals. It's pretending you hit your goals when you know you didn't. It's being a phony. And that's what we read about about Judas in verses four through six. Judas said this, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Oh, Mr. Compassionate Judas, just bleeding heart for the poor. Verse six, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. That, friends, is hypocrisy. Putting on a show pretending to be something that you know is abjectly false. Now, get this. It's not wrong of Judas to have a heart for the poor. Jesus has a heart for the poor. What's wrong of Judas is to, in the name of heart for the poor, to actually be a heart of greed. That's hypocrisy. Now, here's the thing that's so interesting, and this passage even shows us this, is hypocrisy. Here's what's so deadly about it is it so hard to see, right? We kind of imagine, oh yeah, Judas, well, that guy clearly was a hypocrite. But they didn't know it when this was happening, right? Think about it. We we always imagine the scene of the Last Supper and we go, you know, Jesus goes, one of you will betray me. And we sort of imagine every eye turning to Judas. Judas. That's not how it happens, right? Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And what do they say? They don't go, him. They say, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? They don't know it's Judas until later. In fact, Judas is so trusted that when they divvy up the the chore chart for the disciples, which one do they give him? Do you see it? He was in charge of the money. You don't give that to the guy you think is going to blow it or steal it. You give that to the guy who seems the most trustworthy. And that's why hypocrisy is so dangerous. Is because you can be someone who is abusing your wife, oppressing your wife, calling your wife names, controlling all of her money and her time and her relationships. Meanwhile, you look like a godly man. And when she starts to go, hey, there's a problem, no one around believes it. Because look at how much time he serves and look at how much he does and look at how devoted he is. Hypocrisy is hard to see. And you know where it's hardest to see? In the mirror. Do you find yourself telling little white lies, fudging the truth, exaggerating just a little to make yourself seem a little bit better? Maybe there's some hypocrisy there. Not falling short of the standard, but pretending you hit the standard. 
Where are you pretending? Where are you pretending? Listen, there is, there's forgiveness, there's healing, there's freedom that can be found. You don't have to stay caught in this web of deceit. You can come clean. If you are burdened by the pretending, by the acting, by the performing, come clean. There's healing, there's help, there's support, there's counseling, there's care. There's all sorts of things that we can try to encourage you to do to walk in the light because in the light there's freedom. But hypocrisy grows in the dark. It's a picture of hypocrisy. We got to avoid it. Finally, there's a picture that I don't know that we emulate this, but we at least should regard it. And it's a picture of the king. It's a picture of the king. After this meal, we read about what's called the triumphal entry in verses 12 to 19. This is one of the few stories that's actually recorded in all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recount this story. And in this story, here's what it says in verse 12. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's interesting in this passage, multiple times it says that there was a large crowd. And, and so I was kind of curious about this, large crowd, large crowd. And I did kind of a, a search on where does the phrase large crowd show up in John? It shows up twice here in chapter 12. Do you know where else it shows up twice? In John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, there's a large crowd there. And what do they do? They want to crown him king. By the end of John 6, they're all turning on him. And by the end of this, this crowd that is chanting, Hosanna, God save us, bring salvation now, he's the king, is also going to turn on him and say, crucify him. But just because the crowd is fickle doesn't mean they're wrong. He is the king. We don't know how to judge the faith of this crowd, but we know is that what they say is true. They say, Hosanna, God save us, bring salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus is the king, and yet Jesus is a king unlike any other king. Jesus is a king that perfectly combines confidence and humility. We struggle to combine these. We always keep these apart, right? We're either really confident, really bold, really arrogant. We got it all together. We got it all figured out. Don't tell me anything. I can't be corrected. Or we're really kind of overly humble. We sort of rejoice in how lousy we are and how bad we stink and how, you know, and there's a lot of fellowship in our we stinkness. Even our pride, we try to do it humbly. Not Jesus. Jesus is this combination of confident and humble, right? He's confident. Think about this. He doesn't tell Mary, hey, Mary, knock it off. This is a little much. She says, no, this is right, right? When the crowd says, Hosanna, he's the king, he's the king. He's not like, shh, 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 no, 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 stop, stop, stop. You guys, right? That's not what he does. Right, as I said, this is, this is drawn up in four different accounts. In Luke's account of this, he actually gets some blowback. He gets some criticism. People are like, Jesus, what the heck? All these people are saying this. This seems like they're worshiping you. And do you know what he says? He says, if these people didn't shout out, the rocks would. Drop the mic. That is confidence. Like, I deserve to be worshiped. And yet, 
This is not some Napoleonic, insecure, look at how important I am leader. This is a humble king who comes not on a war horse, but how does he come? On a donkey. Listen, y'all, we live close enough to donkeys and horses and farms here. You know, like I live in Queen Creek and right there's times you're driving down the street and it's like, oh, there's a horse. Oh, no, it's a donkey. And it's like, you see a horse and a donkey next to each other and no one's like, I'd rather have the donkey. I mean, it's like, so here he is. Save us, bring salvation. Yes, I will. I'm the king, worship me. Hee-haw, hee-haw. Right, like, Jesus, get an animal you don't have to pedal. You know, like. And yet this is the exact picture of the king that we need to see. Because Jesus didn't come to overthrow the geopolitical forces of Israel and Rome. He didn't come to take back the nation. He came to sacrifice himself and die for sins he did not commit to make peace through the blood of his covenant. He came gentle and lowly and humble. And it's only when you see how low Jesus goes that you actually see how exalted and glorified he is. The glory of Jesus is not seen in his triumph. It's seen in his humility. And it's as he is glorified, look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him. It was interesting in our preaching collective, we get together with all the preachers of all the redemption congregations and we study these things. And one of the things we talked about was, what does John mean when he says, when Jesus was glorified? Is he talking about the cross or is he talking about the resurrection, right? Get what they're saying? They're going, we didn't really understand what's going on until we saw him glorified. And you go, well, which is it? When was he glorified? Was he glorified on the cross or in the resurrection? Yes. Why? Because he's a humble king. This is why there's hope for you and I. If he was only a confident king, if he was only a bold king, if he was only an aggressive king, then his answer to you would be clean it up, do better. Try harder. Why can't you get your stupid act together? But that's not the heart of Jesus. When Jesus tells us what his heart is in Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. We have hope that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be made right with God, that the war that we're on with him can be patched up, that God can move from being our enemy to being our friend. And we have hope of that because we have a humble king. Yes, he's victorious. Yes, he will raise. And yes, he will change the world. There's a touch of irony at the end of verse 19. The Pharisees lament, the world has gone after him. Oh, little did they know. That word world is the Greek word cosmos. And they're right. The cosmos will go after him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And here he is humble, sitting on a donkey. 
so that us sinners, failures, hypocrites, lame worshipers could find grace. Let's pray. Jesus, you're so generous to us and so kind, and we're thankful. And we pray, God, that you would fill our hearts with a desire to exalt you and to celebrate you, that at times we even get out of hand with it. God, we're sorry for the hypocrisy in our hearts, for the ways we pretend, for the ways, not just that we fall short, but the ways we pretend we're okay. Lord, our only hope is to know that you'll accept us, to know that you're approachable, to know that you're gentle and kind. So we thank you that you're a humble king. We want to worship you as king, and we want to come to you as Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.